0: You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. All right, everybody should have gotten a piece of paper on the way in tonight. Did you get one? If you did, hold it up in the air. All right, good. Now that you got that, uh, hopefully you have a pen with you. If, if, if not, there's some in the, in the backs of the chairs in front of you, pews in front of you. And here's what I want you to do. I want to start off with this question tonight. What would you do with the last days of your life if you knew you were about to die? What would you do with the last days of your life if you knew you were about to die? Like, if, I want you to think about this. If you had one year left to live, what would you do with that year? I want to give you a second, and I want you to write that down on the paper. Well, I'm not going to rush this. I want you to take a moment. Think about this. If you had one year left, what would you do with that year? I'll give you a second to think on it. No cheating off other people. Original ideas only. Mama, you're supposed to write on this, not hold the paper in your mouth. She's got the paper. Why do you have the paper in your mouth? Oh, okay. Searching through her purse. I don't understand the female purse, you know, it's like the female carry all, and then when you need a pen, you can't find it because it's at the bottom of everything. I'll give you a couple more seconds. give you enough time all right here's what i want you to do now let's shrink it down a little bit so first question was if if, if all you had was a year what would you do with that year now i want to ask you if all you had was a month what would you do with that month now may it may essentially be the same thing you already wrote just shrunk down it may it may you may have to cut some of what you wrote though so if all you had was a month on the other side of that page or at the bottom if you got room see some of these people are writing novels up here you to have to flip it over. Um, but somewhere on that page or on the back side, I want you to write, what would you do if, if all you had was a month? I'll give you a, a little bit more time. Have enough time? Any more time? Anybody need more time other than awful down here in the front? All right, let me let me, let me pray for us. In fact, you can take that paper. You can uh, stick it in your pocket. You can stick it in your purse, preferably at the top of your purse, not so it gets buried at the bottom. And uh, let me let me pray for us. Then we're going to jump in. Lord Jesus, as we as we uh, continue our study tonight in 2 Timothy, would you guide the conversation? Would you uh, speak through me? And would you through your Holy Spirit? Um, penetrate past our minds and deep into our hearts and show us how we need to respond to you. Um, Ultimately, Lord, we study this and we uh, hopefully interact with you in your presence tonight only because of the mediator, Jesus Christ, who you've you've put there for us um, to save us from our sins, have his righteousness accredited to us as our righteousness so that you see us as you see Jesus. And uh, we know it's only because of that, those of us in this room who are in Christ, that we're able to interact with you uh, in an intimate, uh, relational way. And so for that, we thank you and for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. All right, so we're continuing our study tonight, Second Timothy. Uh, Zach, last week, brought us up to uh, the beginning of chapter 4, so we're picking up in chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to get your Bible out or your phone app out, preferably Bible. Um, and uh, I'll give you a second to get there. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. I want everybody if you have a Bible to get there, I want you to read along. This isn't stuff I'm making up and I want you to see this. I'll Give you a couple seconds to get there. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Well, uh, if you've got it, let me hear you say I've got it. Got it. All right, sounds like most of you so here we go. 2 Timothy chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. It says this. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God, I don't know what week this is of the series. Week six, I think. If you haven't caught this at this point, I know we talked about this week one, but maybe you haven't caught this yet. If you haven't caught the urgency, though, in this letter up to this point, it is absolutely impossible to miss, miss it by reading these eight verses that we've just read tonight. Paul literally knows that this is probably his last letter he'll ever write, and it's definitely the last correspondence he knows he'll have Uh, With Timothy. He knows he's about to die, and he knows that he's leaving his work in the hands of other people. He knows that these are his last words, and and I'm just going to be honest with you. You Over the last few weeks, I've noticed in my own heart a a renewed or a fresh sense of urgency in my own life and my own ministry, Uh, because I know that I've only got a little bit of time left here to finish the work uh, that God has for me here, or at least to get it to a point where it's ready to hand off, you know, it's interesting, and I think I said this week one or part of this week one. You know, five years ago, six years ago, the spring of 2012, I think, so however long ago that was, uh, we studied First Timothy, and, and ever since then, I've I've wanted to study Second Timothy, and you know, as we prepare for series in advance, spend a lot of time praying through that. God never really, I never really felt like God was giving me the green light to do 2 Timothy until this semester, and it's just so awesome to see God's like. For knowledge and sovereignty and perfect planning because he knew coming into this semester as we were preparing months in advance for this uh, that this was the semester that I'd be leaving. And so much of what Paul says in here is, is so applicable to where we're at as a ministry. And honestly, so much of what Paul says are things that I need to say to you before I leave and somebody else uh, comes in. So listen to the tone set by Paul. Look at verse one. He says, I charge you. Which that word charge, it's a very tone-oriented word, like it sets the tone. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. He essentially says, I mean, this is urgency written all over it. He says, in light of Jesus' coming judgment, appearing, and kingdom. Like the reality is, Christ is coming back. When he comes back, he's going to judge the living and the dead. Everybody's going to face this judgment. And he's coming back to finally establish his kingdom, which really has some serious implications on our life. Because one, we know he's coming back. We don't know when. It could be any moment. Wasn't then. So it could be at any moment, though. And when he comes back, he's going to judge and he's going to establish his kingdom. That means there's very little time, an unknown amount of time, for us to engage in the mission that he's called us to and to fulfill, like Paul eventually says to, to Timothy, the mission that each one of us has been given. So there's urgency here. And look at what he says in verse 2. So he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's, who's to judge of the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So in telling Timothy these things, that he's specifically telling Timothy, Preacher Timothy, Pastor Timothy, it's really opening the door for me to say some things tonight to you in a very pastoral way that I feel like I need to say before I leave. So let me just let me just come right out with it. My biggest fear in leaving you is that you're not yet quite as discerning as you should be. I mean, honestly, as, as, as I wrestle with the fact that next week is my last overflow here, some of y'all are like, what is he talking about? I'm... My wife and I are moving to Iowa uh, March 3rd, so next week is my last overflow here. And as I think about that, the hardest part about that for me is that I'm not sure you are as discerning yet as you should be. Look at verse 3. So he goes on, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I mean, he starts off and he says, the time is coming when this will happen. He, he wrote this 2,000 years ago. The time has come. And I mean, you just look at our culture, you look at our society, it is very clear. I mean, these words almost perfectly describe the society that we're living in right now. I mean, it's, it's almost like when you're dating somebody that you know you shouldn't be dating, But you really want to date them And you go to your friends asking for advice about the relationship Like, hey, what do you think about me and, you know, so-and-so dating Like, what are your thoughts? And they they tell you honestly, truthfully They're like, you shouldn't be dating that person What the heck are you thinking? But you really want to date that person So what do you do after they tell you the truth? You, You go find somebody else And get some advice from somebody else And you keep going to the next person Looking for more advice Until you finally come to somebody Who tells you exactly what you want to hear, right? In fact, some of you like, you've gotten to a point where um, some of y'all are looking down right now because you're like, crap, this is exactly, <laughs> like, what is going on? He knows exactly what's going on in my life. Um, but some of you, like, you, you know who the people are in your life, who you go to to get advice from. Who, like, you know that these are the people who are going to say what you want to hear. Like, you know they're going to flatter you, or you just know that they're just, like, not discerning enough at all, have zero ounce of wisdom, and they're just <laughs> going to say what you know uh, you want them to say to you And so you don't go to advice from other people You go get advice from these people That's, that's kind of what this is like You know, I'll just tell you, I, th- I think I've shared this before My biggest fear used to be getting married uh, I was terrified of getting married Because, everybody looks over at Leslie uh, I was terrified of getting, We've had this conversation uh, I was terrified of getting married because I Honestly, I, I was terrified That in getting married, I would marry Somebody who would keep me from being able to follow Jesus 100% and when God got a hold of my heart in college, basically, like, I started, you know, the process of following him and didn't get married until 10 or 11 years later. You know, I was 30, what, 32. And uh, so I had, like, 10 or 11 years of learning to follow Jesus. And in that time, I didn't have to worry about anybody else. I-, I just had to worry about myself. So if I felt like God was saying, go here, I didn't have to, like, worry about anybody else who was involved in that decision. It was just me. So I was like, all right, I feel like God's calling me to go there. I'm going. So my biggest fear was, and here's the other thing, in that 10 years, I saw a lot of buddies of mine who, they got married, had a similar, and have a similar calling on their life, and got married to somebody who, who for whatever reasons, is holding them back from following Jesus. They, they don't have the similar desire to follow Jesus, full hearted. And, and so I had this huge fear that that was going to happen to me, so I start dating Leslie. And uh, I, I mean... Like, it didn't take long. I was in totally head over heels for Leslie. And, uh, and, you know, it was one of those things where, like, it just seemed too good to be true. still does. And honestly, seemed too good to be true. So um, now I was saying that more in a, you know, I don't know, something surely is going to pop up one of these days. But uh, anyways, uh, so I, I was going to all, uh, constantly going to people asking for advice and saying, asking for perspective. You know, love can be blind or infatuation can be blind, Right and so you just see only the good things, you know, and so it's really important to go look for advice and perspective from from other people, and so I was constantly going to these other people, and I would say, so what do you think? I mean, is she like, you think she's legit? I mean, you think she really does love Jesus? You think she really is good for me in ministry? And and everybody was like, dude, she's perfect. Marry the girl, which is what I was afraid they were going to (laughs) say, because again, it just seemed too good to be true, so I would hear all that, and I just, it's kind of the opposite of the example I just gave you. You know, you don't, hear what you want to hear. They're saying, break up. And so you go look for somebody who says, finally says, no, stay together. Well, they were saying, stay together. In fact, marry the girl. And I'm like, well, that's kind of what I was afraid you're going to say. So I'm trying to find people who would tell me, you know, look, here's some serious red flags that we're seeing. So I kept going to other people. In fact, I sent people on recon missions um, where I was like, hey, go take her to dinner or go take her out to coffee. And I want you to ask her these questions. And I want you to try to scare her out of marrying me or jen's laughing because she's one of the people i sent on multiple recon missions <laughs> uh and like trying to for real scare her out of me ma- marry me and, and you know these people they come back and, and they say dude she's legit you need to marry the girl i'm like shoot so i would i would go these other, like the wisest most trustworthy people that i feel like i know and i would seriously say to them i'd say look you need to tell me the truth. I don't want flattery. If there are red flags and you don't tell me those red flags, then I go marry this girl and she becomes my biggest fear, then the blood is on your hands, all right? <laughs> and, uh, and I just kept on asking. And finally, it wasn't until uh, the very end of January last year, I, um, I, I called a friend of mine up in Nashville and, and I was just telling them all of this. And again, another person I'm trying to get advice from and And finally, they just said, and this was like the moment it kind of hit me. They they just said, hey, Austin, have you ever considered the fact that maybe God's just good? (laughs) And they were like, maybe in his goodness, he's just chosen to give you this amazing gift in Leslie. And I was like, holy cow, you know? (laughs) So three days later, I asked her to marry me. But the point is this. The point is this. My biggest fear in leaving you is that I'm, I'm not sure you're as discerning as you should be. Uh, this, this lack, like, I'm not sure you have a hunger really to hear the truth. And this lack of discernment, it's a disease in our society right now. I mean, all this talk on the news, if you even watch the news, uh, is, you know, about the fake news being passed around. You know, or maybe that's fake news, that fake news is being passed around. I don't know. There's no way of knowing. Um, but, you know, the, uh, there's a lot of talk right now about all the fake news being passed around. And, and Zach and I were talking about this uh, beforehand, you know. We're so gullible, you know, I mean, we don't even read the article, we just see the headline and it speaks to our heart and we're like, share, you know, and uh, it, it takes two seconds for this fake news to spread because we read the headline and we're like, yes, that's what I'm, you know, feeling and we don't even like read it to see if it's credible, we don't even check the source to see if it's credible, you know, and, uh, and then it gets spread all over the place and before you know it, there's protests and rallies and all these things happening centered around this fake news. In fact, most of the major news outlets today are not reporting or saying things that they know that their target audience doesn't want to hear. Because they know that if they're, this is how our culture, your generation is. If you are part of their target audience and they start reporting things that they know you don't want to hear, then they know that you're just going to turn them off. You're going to go to some other news outlet or you're just not going to look at a news outlet. And if you turn them off, their ratings go down and they lose money. And uh, and the reality is, like, our society is not hungry for the truth. Our society, people today aren't interested in the truth. They're interested in what reinforces the way they feel. Your generation has gotten to the point where if if somebody or a group of people start saying things that you don't want to hear, then you rally together, you protest, and you shout louder than than them until they're quiet. And until somebody who is going to say the things that you want to hear finally gets a hold of the mic or gets a hold of the platform and starts saying things you want to hear. There's not a hunger for the truth. And there's not a discernment to be able to decipher what is the truth and what isn't the truth. And that lack of discernment, is shows in the church as well. I mean, most of the time, the truth is, is hard to hear. Like, I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible never in all of history has taught things that just easily go along with mainstream culture and society. And so for us, because we don't really like hearing things that we don't like to hear... We float to preachers that we enjoy listening to. And if all you do is listen to people that you enjoy listening to, you're probably not getting the truth. Because again, the truth is not always enjoyable to hear. You know, the other thing is we float to preachers that we think are cool. Somehow we live in a time where we gauge a preacher more by his fashion than his faithfulness. This lack of discernment is, is, is kind of scary. So, what qualities should you look for in someone you're trusting to truly lead you towards Jesus? What Paul says here to Timothy in verse 2 really allows me to pastorally show you four qualities to look for in a pastor, in a preacher. Um, and, and this is not just because I'm leaving, but the reality is many of you, you're going to graduate in a, in a few weeks, uh, a couple years, I got an amen for the few weeks. From um, but when you graduate, like, and you're not in Denton anymore, you're gonna have to find a church to get connected to, and you need to know, like, how to be discerning and who you entrust your spiritual health to, your spiritual leadership to. But even now, you know, with social media, you're always seeing retweets, and and, uh, you know, I see our students all the time. Like, I see y'all, y'all see a retweet from, you know, some some preacher, some, some author, and they're saying, you know, Christian sounding stuff or whatever. And so you click on the profile, you find the podcast, you start listening. You got to have some level of discernment because not everybody out there that looks superficially like somebody you should listen to is actually somebody you should listen to. So four qualities to look for in a pastor. Number one, is do they preach the word? I'm going to give you a lot of questions to ask here, and if you're taking notes, this would be great. If you don't have a pen and paper, then you got the little notepad on your phone. I don't know if you're an Android user. You probably don't have that because they're not as cool, but um, some way you need to write these questions down or go back to the podcast when you do have something to take notes with. First question is do they preach the word? Look at verse 2. Paul commands or charges Timothy, preach the word. I heard one pastor put it this way. Put all the Bible into it that you can. You know, so one of the questions kind of under this big question, do they preach the word, is do they preach the word or do they preach themselves? Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul writes, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I, I want to be cautious with what I'm about to say because um, it's, it's hard to know where the line is on this. But I have a problem with churches, and I really have a problem with pastors who are always... Uh, posting pictures on Instagram of themselves with a quote from their sermon next to it. I mean, one, why does it matter that that's what he said in his sermon? I mean, if it's coming from God's word, isn't that the only thing that matters? But then you got to look at that and you got to, you got to think, I mean, if this is happening all the time, would you look, I mean, some people you all follow on Instagram right now, you see that, you know, you're thinking right now of these people, And again, I want to be cautious in what I'm saying here, because honestly, there's some people I can think of right now that I I respect, and this is happening. I think it's something that needs to change, but you have to ask, okay, if this is what's happening all the time, like, who are they really preaching? Are they preaching God's word, or are they preaching themselves? Who are they really elevating? Who are they really trying to make famous? Is it Jesus, or is it themselves? So, do they preach the word, or do they preach themselves? Also, do they preach the whole counsel of God's word? Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul, a little context here. So he's towards the end of his ministry and he's passing back through Ephesus, um, which if you were at church this Sunday, I preached, I've talked a little bit about this. Ephesus was uh, probably the most invested church or the the church that Paul had invested the most in. So he cared deeply for this church. And so on his way to Jerusalem, he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. Uh, He wanted to stop and spend some time with the leaders of Ephesus, but he knew he loved the church a lot. So if he went to Ephesus... You know, he wouldn't get out of there in the amount of time he needed to get out of there in. So he asked the leaders to meet him in this place called Miletus, which was right on the coast of what's modern day Turkey. Ephesus was a little bit more inland. And so the elders of the church come meet him there. He has some time with them. And in Acts 20, what you see is he's, he's uh, encouraging them, challenging them, saying goodbye to them because they knew this was the last time they'd see him because when he goes to Jerusalem, he's probably going to get arrested, maybe even die at that point. Um, and he also gives them some charges, you know, some, some challenge, some commands. Uh, But part of that, he's kind of explaining Hey, look at how I did ministry among you And imitate that And listen to what he says in verse 27 He says, therefore, I testify to you this day That I am innocent of the blood of all It's a key phrase He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all For or because I did not shrink From declaring to you the whole counsel of God So he claimed that he was innocent of the blood of all Kind of a spiritual metaphor there like if people die without Christ, it it, it was his blood, it, there was no blood on his hands. His hands were clean. Because while he was there, he preached the whole counsel of God. He didn't hold back, he didn't hide anything, he didn't not say it because he knew it'd be hard for people to hear. He preached the whole counsel of God. Some preachers are not innocent of the blood of all. And that's because all they do is preach cute sermons. That speak to felt needs instead of preaching the full counsel of God's word, even when it hurts attendance, and even when it's hard to preach. So, one of the questions I want you to ask as you are trying to discern who to uh, submit your life to their spiritual leadership is do they preach the whole counsel of God's word? Are they willing to deal with the things in Scripture that aren't fun, that aren't easy, that aren't appealing? You know, I'm not saying that it's bad to do these short sermons that are kind of topic-driven, like we did um, a while a while ago. We did how to date, mate, procreate. Great series, uh, and in that series we we preached word for word through certain texts, but we didn't do like texts that necessarily went back to back to each other in Scripture. Like some was from Proverbs, some was from Matthew, and other places like that. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But what I really encourage you to do is find a place where they're going to teach through entire books of the bible like what we're doing with second timothy word for word because it forces you to deal with the stuff that uh, you know normally as a preacher there's some things in here i don't want to deal with you know and as a listener there's some things in there that you don't typically want to listen to but if you let the text drive the series it's just going to be way better all right so one do they preach the word that's the big first question number two are they prepared in and out of season are they prepared in and out of season? Look at verse 2. So again, he charges Timothy, preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. So here's another kind of sub question here. Are you convinced that they're convinced that what they're saying is true? Are you convinced that they're convinced that what they're saying is true? Listen to what Paul says. He says, be ready in and out of season. That word, be ready. It's kind of a military word or an action, I don't know, that's not the right way to say. It's, it's it's almost like this military word. It's it's to stand by or to stand ready to attack. So when you're called on, you're ready. It implies urgency and conviction. So some of these questions that you should ask as you're trying to be discerning here is is, is there conviction in their heart? Because they're teaching, is there is there conviction in their heart. And not only that, is there evidence of that conviction in their actions? You know, another question is, is it obvious that they've labored over the text? Preaching is not easy. And a new trend that's really becoming more and more popular in, in bigger churches where they have the resources to do this is, is putting together or hiring a, uh, a preaching team or a research team or a creative pastoral preaching team. Where weekly they come together, and you know, they, there's one guy that's maybe preaching, but then you got this team of people who are helping him do research, and then if it's kind of more of a creative leaning team, they're helping him kind of formulate these series that, that have these you know big um, like plug lines or these big you know lines that are tweetable and all stuff, and and they're trying to make it all creative and all that. Now it's not necessarily bad, but it does lead me to ask some questions, like who's actually writing the sermon? I mean, is it the creative team? Or is the Holy Spirit actually writing the sermon on the heart of the guy who 's going to preach it that 's the most important thing i wanted to, I wanted to give you a quote from an a w Tozer book called the Pursuit of God um, and so last night I went to I have a kind of a study in our apartment, and uh, I forgot that i'd packed up all of our books and so and there 's like fifteen boxes, and I had no clue which one it was in so I tried to find it online i couldn 't find it online, but I found. An excerpt from one of his sermons that's close to to what uh the quote I was wanting to find actually says and, and so A.W. Tozer in one of his sermons he says this if Christianity is to receive a rejuvenation it must be by other means than any now being used if the church in the second half of this century which he he died in I think the 80s so he's talking about the 1900s um But, you know, whatever. So if the church in the second half of this century is to recover from the injuries she suffered in the first half, there must appear a new type of preacher. The proper ruler of the synagogue type will never do. The CEO. Neither will the priestly type of man who carries out his duties, takes his pay, and asks no questions. Nor the smooth-talking pastoral type who knows how to make the Christian religion acceptable to everyone. All these have been tried and found wanting. Then he goes on to say, another kind of religious leader must arise among us. He must be of the old prophet type, a man who has seen visions of God and has heard a voice from the throne. When he comes, and I pray God there will be not one but many, he says, he will stand in a flat contradiction to everything our smirking, smooth civilization holds dear. He will contradict, denounce, and protest in the name of God and will earn the hatred and and, and, an opposition of a large segment of christendom christianity such a man is likely to be lean rugged blunt spoken and a little bit angry with the world he will love christ and the souls of men to the point of willingness to die for the glory of the one and the salvation of the other but he will fear nothing that breathes with mortal breath wouldn't you have loved to meet aw tozer it's like that dude was fiery but are you hearing what he's saying there The types of people we need shepherding us from the pulpit are people who are meeting with God. Who the Holy Spirit is writing these sermons on their heart. In fact, he goes on to say in in another book of his, um, Whatever Happened to Worship, he says, we cannot worship in truth alone, for that would be theology without fire. So are they laboring over the text. But but going back to that question, are they prepared in and out of season? Are they literally prepared in and out of season? In other words, are their sermons off the platform as good as their sermons on the platform? Do you understand what I'm saying by that? Like, does the life they're living off the platform preach as good as the sermons that they preach when they're on the platform, the lights are on and everybody's looking at them? Now, you're not looking for a perfect pastor or preacher. There's only one of those and his name's Jesus. But, Again, is it obvious that they're wrestling with this stuff that they're preaching as well? There's a lot of guys who can get up and deliver great, hilarious, emotional, enthusiastic, eloquent, alliterated sermons. But who act like total jerks. And are wearing thousands of dollars worth of clothes, driving super fancy cars, and living in huge houses. And obviously not wrestling with... What God's word says about what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. I mean, if you want a quick, quick test, this is kind of a quick test that I use in my head when I'm, you know, considering guys uh, that I'm looking at listening to is one. What do they wear? What do they drive? Where do they live? What do they wear? What do they drive? Where do they live? Now, you got to be cautious with this. And I'm going to give you a very personal example why you got to be cautious with this. Leslie and I, Leslie was given a very nice car a while back. Um, So we in our family have a Mercedes. Uh, We did not purchase this. We would not purchase a car like that, but it was given to us. We're super grateful for it. Um, And I know other people have been given nice things, you know, but that's not necessarily how they would spend their money. In fact, we would love to get rid of this car. We would love to sell it. If any of you want to buy a Mercedes, we would love to get rid of it because uh, it's so expensive to try and upkeep this thing. Um, So you do have to be cautious, Uh, and, and I almost hesitated in saying that tonight, that I am the partial owner of a Mercedes because I know that some people look at that thinking, okay, dude, all the stuff you preach, you know, and, and I understand that. I mean, there's literally, there's times that we, there's a lot of times we just, we don't even drive that car because we, we don't want people to think that that's how we want to spend our money. It was given to us. It's a gift. Again, we're super grateful for it, but um, so in that sense, you got to be cautious in using this little quick litmus test. But in the other sense, I think it's a great test. What do they wear? What do they drive? Where do they live? How are they spending their money? I mean, are they prepared in and out of season? Are they preaching not just when they're on the platform, but when they're off the platform as well? Does that make sense? All right, so first big question, are they preaching the word? Second is, are they prepared in and out of season? Third, do they reprove and rebuke? I've had so much trouble saying those two words together the past few days. Reprove and rebuke. Try saying that three times fast. Reprove, I'm, I'm serious. Try saying that three times fast. Ready, set, go. Reprove, rebuke, reprove, rebuke. Can't do it. Yeah, you sound dumb. Do they reprove and rebuke? That first word, reprove. It essentially means to expose. So, do they expose? And then rebuke means to command. So, do they expose and do they command? Essentially, do they expose the sin in your life and do they call you out on it? If not, then they're probably not preaching the word. Because God's word, I mean, what is it? Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word, Jesus himself, is compared to light. He exposes what's hidden in the darkness. So the closer you get to the light and Jesus is revealed in God's word, so this word in so many ways is the light into our life, the closer you get to that, the more it's going to expose all the filth in your life. So if they do not reprove and rebuke, expose and command, expose your sin, call you out on it, then they're probably not preaching the word. Fourth, do they encourage with patience and careful instruction? I forgot to show you uh, where these last two were in the text, but verse 2, he tells Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So fourth and final quality to look for is, do they encourage with patience and careful instruction? Do Do they always encourage you with the gospel? Look at that last part again. He says, exhort with complete patience and teaching. That word teaching essentially means careful instruction. So do they encourage you always with the gospel? Encouraging you with things like your destiny is greatness, or believe in yourself, or your breakthrough is just around the corner. That's not careful instruction. That is prosperity crap. They're encouraging you with stuff that's not necessarily true. Are they always encouraging you with the gospel? Do they encourage you not with what you can do for yourself, but with what Jesus has already done for you? Do they encourage you not with how good you are, but how good Jesus is? Do they encourage you with patience and careful instruction? So do they preach the word? Are they prepared in and out of season? Do they reprove and rebuke? And do they encourage with patience and careful instruction? Now look at verse 5. We already looked at verse 3 and 4. Verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. I quickly want to look at these. Now, these are commands given to Timothy, Pastor Timothy, but these are commands that honestly each one of us should embrace. Four commands here. One, be sober-minded. That word there, sober-minded, essentially means uh, to be steady. Any of y'all go to the TW Gymnastics meet this past Sunday? Anybody in here? One, That is a shame. Do we have any of our gymnasts here tonight? We normally have gymnasts here. Okay, well, I'm going to call them out on that. Uh, the one week I call them out, none of them are here. That stinks. Well, uh, so t they their gymnastics meet this, this past week, they killed it. They scored a 196, and that's tied a record set in 2003. And Leslie uh, and I weren't able to go to this meet, we'd go to their other meets, but we followed along on their Instagram story, TW Gymnastics on Instagram, it's pretty cool. Every time they have a meet, they just post every single uh, thing the girls do. If you've never been to a gymnastics meet, you gotta go, it's nuts. <laughs> um, but I think, and I wasn't there, but I think based on the Instagram story, what set them so far out in this meet was how they did on beam. Uh, nobody fell off the beam, all their dismounts were ridiculous, and... Uh, you know, if you've seen a gymnast do beam, it's crazy. Like, how do they do that stuff? And uh, last semester, they have uh, their pre-Christmas break meet, inter-squad meet called the Holiday Something Spectacular. And they have some people from the community that they asked to be judges. Well, I was honored to be asked to be one of the judges. So my judging team is me. How many t doublers do we have here tonight? Okay, so it's me. I was way too enthusiastic. Uh, so it was me, Dr. Faden, you know, your, pre- your, I almost said principal, uh, your, pre- your president and chancellor, I'm a loser, uh, and then another guy on administration there, and so we, we judged the beam and we judged the bars, and literally, this is how I judged, I told Dr. Faden this, uh, I judged based on how many times they did something that I knew I either would have died or gotten severely injured doing it. <laughs> So if they did at least four things that I know I would have died or gotten severely injured doing, I gave them a 10. If they only did, like, two, I gave them, like, an eight and a half or a 9 or something like that. And there are some things that they did where, I mean, literally, like, they, they, there's this one. One of the girls, she does this backflip where it's, like, a delayed flip or something. Probably that's technical gymnastic terms right there. Uh, and it looks like she's just going to fall flat on her neck and die. Uh, but, like, in the last second, she pulls it out and then lands on this tiny little beam. And uh, it's just uh, my facial expressions, I'm sure, were hilarious watching. Because I'm like, ah, you know, there's another move. I won't tell you about it. But anyways, the point that I'm getting at is this. To be sober-minded is to be steadied. And I picture those gymnasts on the beam. Uh, the Greek word there, nephotes, the opposite of the word intoxicated. And here's what's so crazy about this. Trends, fads, trends, they're, they're intoxicating. But they're not steady. That's why they're not called the truth. The truth is steady. It never changes. If you stand on the truth, you'll be steady. If you stand on trends, it's intoxicating, and as soon as those trends go away, so is your stance. You're going to fall. So, one, always be sober-minded. Number two, endure suffering. We've talked about this a lot in this series, so I won't spend much time here. But again, suffering is the expectation, not the exception. Don't run from it. Embrace it. Endure it. We've totally lowered the bar for following Jesus in our culture because the American dream says that all suffering is bad. But you read the Bible and that's not the case at all. In fact, just read Matthew chapter 5 where it talks about the blessing it is to be persecuted for Christ. The blessing it is to be hated for following him. So, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. Three, do the work of an evangelist. Give your life to intentionally sharing the gospel with others. And four, fulfill your ministry. All eyes up here for a second. All of you are called to ministry. In a lot of ways, this whole terminology of of, uh, saying we're called to ministry, I think has created this scapegoat for so many people in the church who don't want to embrace the fact that all who are in Jesus Christ are called to ministry. So what that means is every single person in this room, if you are in Jesus Christ, that means you are called to ministry. Some are called to be pastors, but everybody's called to ministry. And so what Paul's saying here to Timothy and what he's essentially saying to us is, every single one of you are called to ministry. Therefore, whatever your ministry is, then do it. Give your entire life to it. Fulfill your ministry. God's given you specific gifts and a specific context that you are in so that you can be involved in his mission and you can do that through your ministry. So be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. All right, let's wrap this up chapter two, or chapter four, verse six, listen to what Paul says. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Listen, Paul knew he was about to die, and that totally dictated how he was living. But it's important for us to see that it didn't just dictate the last few days of his life. It dictated his entire life after encountering Jesus. In fact, you go to Acts chapter 9 where where Paul, formerly known as Saul, came to know Christ. And you follow his life through the end of the book of Acts. You see this. In fact, Paul, I like to think of it this way. Paul was dead long before he had died. Like, I don't know if that makes sense, but Paul was dead long before he, was, long before he had died. Philippians 1, 21 says, for to me, Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he talks about how they had been facing all these pressures and persecutions and hardships, and then he goes on to say, look, we are able to endure through it and continue pressing forward, living as though these are our last days, because we're not looking to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. It's the same message that you see in Ecclesiastes where, where, uh, where, where it says, don't live for things that are under the sun. If you're living a life for the things under the sun, you're wasting your life. And that's because there's, there's things above the sun that are, that are worth living for, things that have an eternal impact. So the point is what Paul says here when he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Paul was done. But Paul wasn't just done, he was done running a race that mattered. And verse 8 tells us, this was a race that impacted eternity. Verse 8, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This was a race that impacted eternity. And so here's the question I want you to ask tonight. What race are you running? Go back to that piece of paper that you wrote on at the very beginning of the night. Pull that out. I want you to find it. And remember, the question that I gave you to start off the night was, what would you do with the last days of your life if you knew you were about to die? Like, if you had one year left, how would you spend that year? What would you do with that year? If you had one month, what would you do with that month? What you wrote down matters. It's a, it's a true reflection of your heart. It's a true refl- reflection of the race that you are currently running. And some of you, you wrote things down like you would travel the world. If you had one year left, you'd travel the world some of you wrote things, in fact, I bet a lot of you wrote things like if you had just one month or one year left, you would spend that time with family as much as as you could with family or loved ones or people that you cared about. You maybe wrote specific names down. Others of you wrote, you know, you would go see fill in the blank or you would go do fill in the blank. Let me just tell you, over the past few weeks, God has been reteaching me what living with urgency is all about. Everything changes when you know you're going to be gone soon. And listen, you are going to be gone soon. You're running a race, and anybody in here who's run a race knows that races don't last long. For some of you, it's going to be a sprint. You're not guaranteed a marathon. Like, you need to realize that. Some of you, your life is literally going to be a sprint. You are not guaranteed anything past today or this year. Some of you, you won't live past this year. You won't live very long. But even if you live to your 80, if you, even if you do get the marathon, even marathons in the big scheme of things don't last very long. So again, the question on the table tonight is this, what race Are you running? Are you running a race that matters? Are you running a race that will impact eternity? Here's the reality. Every single race that's being run in this room is gonna impact eternity. The question is, will it impact eternity positively or negatively? So look at that piece of paper again. What did you write on that piece of paper? If you had one month or one year, what would you do with that month or what would you do with that year? Again, what you wrote down matters because it's a true reflection of your heart and the race that you're currently running. And and let me just ask you, Looking at what you wrote down, is that even a race worth running? Like, does that race reflect one, as Paul writes at the very end of verse 8? Look at that. He says, not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Some translations say all who have longed for his appearing. When you look at that race that is reflected in what you wrote down on your piece of paper, does that race reflect one who loved his appearing or who is longing for Christ's return? Listen, you're going to be gone soon. So my challenge to you is this. Run the race that matters. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.